Okay, this is a continuation of part two, Yeshua Judaism part two, how Yeshua Judaism differs from Orthodox or Rabbinic Judaism. And this is the second part of part two. We got through the first four distinctions in the uh, part one of part two. <laughs> and since I don't, I prefer not to go, if I can try to keep podcast within a time frame of an hour, that's what I prefer. And uh, when it gets to be around 45 minutes, that's when I start to look for a place to exit. And the last one, the first part, part two, number one, <laughs> uh, went through the first four distinctions. So we're going to be picking up at number five. And that again, so this is part two of Yeshua Judaism, the itemized distinctions of how Yeshua Judaism differs from Akiva Judaism or Orthodox Judaism. So now continuing with number five. Yeshua Judaism defines Israel as anyone, Jew or Goy, that is non-Jew, who embraces and attaches themselves to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is, the God of Israel. Of course, attachment to the one and only God necessitates attachment to his Torah. Attachment to Yeshua Messiah further strengthens the attachment to God by allowing the merit of Messiah to be shared with the one attached. Attachment to Israel, according to Yeshua Judaism, does not require a rabbi's approval. God decides who is accepted, not a rabbi. In contrast, Akiva Judaism's definition of Israel is more focused on the term Jew, or an ethnicity, and defines a Jew as anyone born a Jew or who converts as dictated by a rabbi. Since conversion to Akiva Judaism requires a rabbi's approval, according to Akiva Judaism, attachment to Israel does require a rabbi's approval. The rabbi decides who is accepted. So summarizing there, in Yeshua Judaism, God decides who is expect, excuse me, acceptable. In Akiva Judaism, the rabbi decides who is acceptable. And interestingly also, and this isn't in the uh, written material, even Noachides, of course, Judaism, Akiva Judaism, the rabbis teach that a non-Jew should not study Torah unless they convert per the rabbi's dictates. And if they decide they do not want to convert, they can be a nochad, which is basically based on the nochad laws. But even that, according to most rabbis, requires a rabbi's approval also. So a rabbi must even authorize a person to become a nochad, which is quite interesting. And I'll discuss this later also, but it's interesting to me, too, that they always list that they say that there are seven laws, seven Noahide laws, or seven laws that a non-Jew must adhere to, and 613 laws within the Torah that a Jew must adhere to. But that's not true, actually, and they know it. Those seven laws can be expanded dramatically to include many of those 613. So what they do is, in reality, it should be 7 and 10, the seven Noahide laws 
and then the Ten Commandments that were given through Moshe or Moses at Mount Sinai. But what they do is they then take those 10 and expand them to 613, but they don't do that to the seven Noahide laws. So what that does is it explicitly diminishes the number of laws or really the spirituality of any non-Jew because it's like, oh, well, they just have to keep seven commandments and we have to keep 613. Oh, we're just so spiritual. That's totally false. It's absolutely false. I went through today. I mean, you, you there's I got the Rambam's books on the commandments. I got the Mishnah Torah. I've got other things. You can just look through a list of the 613 commandments, and it's very obvious. Many of them, a Noachad would also be obligated to keep. And while we're on the subject of the commandments, even the rabbis admit the 613 today are not able to be observed. There's there's uh, estimates I've seen typically there's really only 270 or so that are actually observable. Why? There was no temple. There's no priest. Some are for women. Some are for men. Some are in Israel, etc. So we need anything dealing with the temple or a priest. Well, we don't have a temple. We don't have priests. We can't do that. Of course, they replace them with Durabanams, but that's a whole other story. But the point is, they keep throwing out this 613 commandments number for Jews and only seven for those stupid non-Jews. But And, and they know that's totally bogus. That is absolutely bogus, and they, just, they need to stop doing that. And again, this was an expansion. But again, number five, Yeshua Judaism dis- teaches that God decides who is acceptable. And Akiva Judaism says, nope, God doesn't decide. The rabbis do. Now, continuing on to number six of a distinction between Yeshua Judaism and Akiva Judaism. Okay, Yeshua Judaism clearly supports the truth that Israel was given a unique, exalted, and unparalleled mission. Akiva Judaism, on the other hand, teaches that Jews have a unique, exalted, and unparalleled position. Notice the difference? Yeshua Judaism certainly teaches that there are differing missions for various people, but missions should never be confused with positions. Missions refer to the primary role, purpose, or divinely assigned task an individual may have. In contrast, Judaism teaches that since the soul of a Jew is superior to that of an odd Jew, as we discussed earlier in the first part of part two, Jews, according to Akiva Judaism, hold a superior position among humanity. Instead of simply having the most crucial mission, which they most assuredly do. Akiva Judaism grossly deforms the essential Jewish mission into a Jewish position of superiority. Now, number seven. Yeshua Judaism teaches that a person, any person, who strives to draw near to God can affect creation and thus perform tikkun, or tikkun, that is, repair or correction to themselves or to aspects of creation itself. However, Akiva Judaism teaches that only the Jew can affect tikkun or tikkun because the inferior soul, 
as we discussed previously, of non-Jews doesn't provide them the capability to do so. Number eight, Yeshua Judaism teaches that God is impartial. Akiva Judaism utterly rejects that with a vengeance, believing that God is very partial to the Jew and far less concerned about the rest of humanity. There are currently, as of the time of this podcast, an estimated 7.7 billion people living on planet Earth, and that number is rapidly approaching 8 billion. At the time of this writing, approximately 15 million of those 8, well, 7.7 billion, are Jews. Jews, therefore, represent a mere 0.2% of the world's population. One source I referenced, estimated that the 0.2 percentage should hold steady into the year 2050. But since I am fully convinced Messiah will return before then, I'll just say that it should hold steady until Messiah arrives. Now, if you use an extremely conservative estimate to enlarge the Jewish population using controversial assumptions, you arrive at an estimate as quoted from Wikipedia, and this is a quote from Wikipedia. Quote, the world's, core, excuse me, the world's core Jewish population was estimated at 14,511,000 in April of 2018, up from 14.41 million in 2016. Demographer Sergio della Pergola proposes an extended Jewish population, including people identifying as partly Jewish and non-Jews with Jewish parents, numbering 17.3 million globally. And, and, excuse me, and an enlarged Jewish population figure that also includes non-Jewish members of Jewish households, totaling 20.2 million. Additionally, the number of people who hold or are eligible for Israeli citizenship under the law of return, defined as anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent and who does not profess any other religion, is estimated at around 23 million. End quote. Okay, so I will generously assume that there are currently as many as 23 million humans who can somewhat controversially speaking, be identified as Jewish. Even with those dubious figures, Jews still represent a mere 0.3% of the total world population. Therefore, Akiva Judaism advances an agenda which proclaims that God is partial towards 0.2% to 0.3% of mankind, while not having much concern at all for the other 99.7 to 99.8% of humanity. I mean, people think about that. But that is literally what Akiva Judaism advances. Effectively, it teaches that God doesn't have much concern for 99.7% to 99.8% of humans. People, that's, that's, just, that's just unloving. That's just harsh. But that's what it teaches. That's what Akiva Judaism teaches. Now, number nine. 
Yeshua Judaism teaches that Torah, that is God's eternal teachings or God's ways, is for all mankind. Contrast that with Akiva Judaism, which teaches that Torah is for only an exclusive, elitist Jewish minority, the minority we spoke of just previously, the 0.2 to 0.3% of humanity who are Jews. Yeshua Judaism advances the belief that God, that is, now remember, Yeshua Judaism advances the belief that God and only God determines who is worthy to receive Torah, and that he, God, welcomes all to draw near, draw near to him. As Yeshua the Messiah stated, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light, etc. Now, of course, I'm not implying Yeshua is God, but that's just to emphasize how Yeshua the Messiah himself said, Come to me, all. Also, elsewhere in the New Testament, it is stated that it is God's will that all men be saved or redeemed or made whole. There are a plethora of New Testament verses suggesting the openness of God to receive all mankind, anyone who wishes to sincerely draw near to him. Akiva Judaism, on the other hand, teaches that only the Jew can acceptably receive Torah and that any goy or non-Jew who wishes to study and practice it must first go through a hazing process performed by a rabbi during which they are discouraged from converting. If they endure the hazing, they then must submit to the authority of the rabbi, follow the rabbi's dictates, and convert per the rabbi's demands. Only then, if the rabbi accepts them, are they considered acceptable to receive and practice Torah. Therefore, Akiva Judaism, without any divine authorization whatsoever, considers itself the gatekeeper for entry into Torah, and yes, even entry into the eternal world to come, Olam Haba, eternal life. They knowingly and intentionally present barriers to any non-Jew who wishes to draw near to the, to the Creator, while resisting the sharing of Torah to assist the effort of the non-Jews to draw near to God. Yeshua Judaism invites all to come and drink from the pure, clear spring of Torah. The desire is for Torah to be spread throughout the entire world to all humankind. Akiva Judaism teaches that Torah applies to only Jews and anyone who submits to the authority of the rabbis and is accepted by their rabbis during this present age of God's concealment. It teaches that Torah will be spread to all mankind only after Messiah ben David arrives to perform the task when God's concealment is lifted during the Messianic age. Oddly, that explicitly shows that even Akiva Judaism recognizes that the spread of Torah to all mankind is the ultimate intent. The question then becomes, why does Akiva Judaism selfishly oppose Torah being spread throughout the world if that is the ultimate goal anyway? Distinction number 10. 
Yeshua Judaism teaches that Torah is God's Torah, is unchanging, and that only He has the authority to change it if He so desires. Akiva Judaism, on the other hand, teaches that Torah is their Torah, that it can be changed as they wish, and that they, that is the rabbis, have full authority to change it. Few people realize, particularly Christians, that a foundational belief within Akiva or Orthodox Judaism is that once God gave the Torah from Mount Sinai, it ceased to be God's Torah, and it became their Torah, that is, the Torah of the Jews. I will provide direct proof of this in future podcasts, God willing. The rabbis of Akiva Judaism, particularly the Tanaim and Emerim, the rabbis present in Talmudic literature from whom all of Akiva Judaism originates, felt and decreed that an authorized group of rabbis can augment the Torah however they see fit, despite the fact that the Torah itself explicitly commands not to do so. Akiva, excuse me, Akiva Judaism's rabbis, being masters of double talk and legalese, regularly create convoluted arguments to explain things such as how, despite the Torah's strict prohibition against adding to or subtracting from Torah, they can nevertheless do so while somehow not actually doing it. For example, with regards to the prohibition in the written Torah against changing Torah, it is sometimes claimed by the rabbis, that is, within Akiva Judaism, that God was only referring to the panemius, or inner essence of Torah, being off-limits to change, which they explain allows all other elements of Torah to be open to any change or interpretation they wish to make. Oh, did I forget to mention that the panemius, or inner essence of Torah, is defined by those rabbis? In other words, my friend, their argument is nothing more than a classic fox-guarding-the-henhouse scenario. They add or change whatever they please within Torah, then claim that what they modified was not a panemius aspect, thereby clearing themselves of any Torah violation. They are like drivers who set their own speed limit on the highway based upon how fast they wish to drive at any given moment, all the while ignoring the clearly posted speed limit. Furthermore, Akiva Judaism's leaders teach that a majority opinion of the rabbis supersedes any and all other evidence for truth, including miracles or a batkol or heavenly voice of divine instruction. That is, because they consider themselves Torah's owners. Therefore, since they own it, that is, they own the Torah, it's theirs now, they can do with it as they please. Ironically, however, those same rabbis contradict that Talmudic credo if they allegedly receive a heavenly voice or emissary. Akiva Judaism is filled with examples of various revered sages who allegedly received information from a Magid or a heavenly being or even from Elijah the prophet. 
Therefore, although, again, they have no proof of this, but that's what they say. Therefore, they apply that teaching only when those with whom they disagree claim to have received information by similar means. I often wonder if the majority opinion ruling established by the Tanaim or the Chazal was a reaction to the many miracles God performed through Yeshua and his disciples, all of whom Akiva Judaism utterly despises. Most people do not realize that the Tanaim lived during or within roughly a generation of Yeshua and the apostles. The teachings and miracles of Yeshua and his original followers would have been very fresh on their minds, with some of them likely being either direct witnesses or hearing of it from others as the miraculous news spread throughout Israel. Thus, it would have been, and still is, a source of intense envy and disdain. If this is new to you, then I suggest that you pause and consider the enormity of such a teaching. Akiva Judaism teaches that the Torah is no longer God's Torah, but is their Torah? That they can add to it as they see fit, which they have done so profusely? That the opinion of a handful of rabbis overrules divine instruction from above? What this illustrates is the godlike power that Akiva Judaism's early inventors authorized for themselves after the Second Temple destruction. Okay, now distinction number 11. Yeshua Judaism correctly restricts the extent of authority given to their leaders so as to prevent imposing power that is reserved solely for God and to prevent dangerous personality cults from arising within the faith. Obviously, since Yeshua Judaism accepts Yeshua as Messiah ben Yosef, or Yosef, or Messiah ben Joseph, however you wish to say it, who will return as Messiah ben David, then it grants total authority to him as the chosen one of God. However, Akiva Judaism feels exactly the same about Messiah, but it simply doesn't recognize Yeshua as being Messiah. Akiva Judaism, on the other hand, is founded upon an astounding excess of rabbinic authority and dictatorial power, which by its very nature dangerously approaches the definition of a personality cult, with the primary personalities being their revered sages. A possible example of the non-authoritarian nature of Yeshua Judaism is seen when Yeshua directly instructed his followers to not address others as rabbi because of how it implies submission of will to potentially arrogant rabbis lusting for power, adoration, and control. Unfortunately, some alleged followers of Yeshua today do not hesitate to label others or take upon themselves the label of rabbi. There are other examples within the New Testament of the power limitations that Yeshua Judaism imposes. In contrast to Yeshua Judaism's opposition to authoritarian rule, 
Akiva Judaism, in terms of the power and truth of their teachings, elevate the Chazal, or sages, to a level equal to, and at times seemingly above, the Creator God. It is taught within Akiva Judaism that the Chazal, or their revered sages, eliminated Avodazar, or idolatry, from Israel. However, with utmost respect, I must state that the Chazal are so enormously revered within Akiva Judaism to the point of being essentially worshipped that actually a lesser form of idolatry appears to still be practiced within Akiva Judaism. In a sense, they didn't eliminate idolatry. They simply replaced the idols somewhat. They became the idols. This is extremely easy to prove. The dilemma faced in doing so is not a lack of evidence. Instead, the problem is that there is a massive overabundance of evidence, which creates the problem of deciding which proofs to use and which to leave out in order to limit a discussion. I intend to provide that material in future discussions. I absolutely believe, I truly believe, that the Chazal, the Jewish sages, were men of extremely high wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and of course righteousness. However, they were still mortal men, and therefore imperfect. I also highly revere all other great rabbinic minds of Judaism's history, past and present. I wish Akiva Judaism would show a measure of respect, at least, for Yeshua Judaism's New Testament sages. However, only those, since even I limit my respect for Christianity's anti-Torah or anti-Semitic leaders who arose following Rome's kidnapping and redefinition of the authentic New Testament faith. Be that as it may, revere should never venture into the domain of worship, which is precisely what has occurred within Akiva Judaism. The Hazal are not infallible, even though it is obvious that Akiva Judaism thinks otherwise. They are human beings. They are not God. They are not Messiah. They are not one of the patriarchs, Moses, or among the great prophets. Therefore, they are subject to error, despite the fact that their errors may be rare. Number 12 among the distinctions between Yeshua Judaism and Akiva Judaism. Yeshua Judaism began during a time when the Torah faith had become infested with man-made traditions and corruption created by the forerunners of Akiva Judaism and later multiplied exponentially by Akiva Judaism's rabbis. Yeshua Judaism strives to reestablish Judaism back into its original faith when it was free of so many burdensome traditions. By contrast, Akiva Judaism is built upon such burdens, is happy to add more, and strongly opposes anyone who dares question the need for them. Now on to distinction number 13. 
Yeshua Judaism teaches to love and pray for your enemies. Akiva Judaism actually prays against their enemies. The sages of Akiva Judaism instituted a curse within synagogue liturgy called the Berkat Hamanin blessing to actually be prayed multiple times each day for the destruction and essentially damnation of its enemies. It is included within the Shemone Israel or Amidah prayer. Now think about that. This is a big point. Yeshua Judaism teaches to pray for enemies. In contrast, Akiva Judaism prays against enemies within their synagogues and has since the second century. That is an enormous difference with an obvious clue as to which is the more loving, merciful, forgiving, and overall godly faith. And lest I forget, within Akiva Judaism's definition of enemy is any group which simply differs with their faith system. Yeshua Judaism is a clear example which was a direct target of the curse when Akiva Judaism slipped it into the Amidah prayer in the late first century. Irrefutable proof will be, will be provided in a follow-up discussion. In other discussions, I will discuss the clear measure-for-measure measure hardships this dictatorial curse combined with Akiva Judaism's superior human species mentality may have historically brought upon the Jewish people. Ramifications that the rabbis of Akiva Judaism refuse to dare consider. Itemized number 14, distinction number 14 between Yeshua Judaism and Akiva Judaism. Yeshua Judaism places major emphasis on faith and love for your fellow man, including even your enemies, while strongly encouraging its followers to adopt Torah into their lives as they sincerely feel it applies and as they learn it. Akiva Judaism has less emphasis on faith. Now, I say that they obviously do emphasize faith, but it's less than Yeshua Judaism. And that's due to its dominant emphasis on mitzvot, the 613 commandments within Torah. And Akiva Judaism has far, far, far less emphasis on love for your fellow man. In my opinion, there is no legitimate Sanhedrin today to clarify mitzvot details or commandment details and will not be until Messiah ben David comes to possibly create it. But Yeshua Judaism recognizes the details regarding mitzvah observance are less important than sincerity of intent and the state of a person's heart. However, sincerity requires that a person does not try to avoid Torah observance, but instead always strives to pursue further Torah understanding so that proper observance can be practiced and that the observer can grow and grow and grow in greater Torah understanding. Yeshua Judaism teaches that love is to be shown to all peoples of the earth instead of simply a small fraction. Akiva Judaism, despite abundant 
outstanding teachings to be found within its material in which faith, love, etc. is emphasized, nevertheless contradicts that with its enormous emphasis on pedantic, overscrupulous, persnickety observance of the mitzvot, or commandments, and the minutia of oral Torah, or dirabanams, which they impose. And a dirabanam is basically a rabbinic dictate. Individual groups within Akiva Judaism may even add more rabbi-dictated traditions, which varies from group to group. Additionally, Akiva Judaism's focus upon love implicitly limits the exercise of love to Jews, or at least allows far less love to be shown towards the non-Jews. Essentially, Yeshua Judaism interprets love your neighbor as love your fellow man. Akiva Judaism interprets love your neighbor as love your fellow Jew. And frankly, at times, they are quite explicit in that interpretation. Love your fellow Jew, not your fellow man, according to Akiva Judaism. Number 15 among the distinctions between Yeshua Judaism and Akiva Judaism. Yeshua Judaism teaches all who are worthy through righteousness, repentance, suffering, shared merit from a tzaddik or righteous person to whom one can spiritually attach, or a combination of all four of those, which is generally the norm, will merit eternal life. Akiva Judaism teaches the exact same thing. However, it tends to override all five items with the teaching that, with the exception of a tiny fraction of history's Jews, all Jews will merit eternal life regardless of their faith or lack thereof, simply because they are ethnic Jews. That would not be a bad teaching, and I sincerely hope it is correct. However, Akiva Judaism also teaches that very few non-Jews will merit such reward, even if those non-Jews are more loving and righteous than their Jewish contemporaries who will receive the reward. Akiva Judaism teaches, depending upon the rabbi you listen to, that non-Jews will have a much more difficult time meriting eternal life, and that even those who do will be of a lesser class of eternity's citizens. As one rabbi compares it, quote, Jews will own the house and all houses. Gentiles will only be able to rent, end quote. Virtually all rabbis believe, quote, the Gentiles will serve the Jews in the world to come, end quote. And finally, another way it is stated is that, quote, Gentiles will be like a garment for the Jews, end quote. Now, distinction number 16, and this is the last distinction. Yeshua Judaism was only one of numerous sects of Judaism in the first century, and it was and still is a legitimate sect of Judaism. One source I referenced listed 27 distinct sects of Judaism at that time. Akiva Judaism, on the other hand, considers itself to be the one and only legitimate sect, and per its previously mentioned Berkat Hamanim curse, 
within the daily Amidah prayer, prays for the eternal destruction of all others. I implore you to do an internet research of the topics I have mentioned, for which I will provide ample proofs in expanded discussions in other podcasts. YouTube videos and podcasts are available in which rabbis give lectures where the examples presented are mentioned. Do not search for the sake of finding error, but instead so that you are aware of the reality of the situation. Hopefully, it will prompt you to study and further spread Yeshua Judaism's Torah truth. At this point, I think I'm going to pause the podcast. I was about to enter into the conclusion of the podcast in which we discuss Yeshua, Yeshua Judaism and present a general definition with the distinctions between Yeshua Judaism and Akiva or Orthodox Judaism. However, we've surpassed 35 minutes. Actually, we've surpassed 36 minutes. And I realized for a listener, that's a long time. So I think I'm going to pause in this part two of part two of Yeshua Judaism. And I invite you to listen to part three of part two. <laughs> Excuse me. I, it's just, it's a, part two is long. And as, as I've said before, it's, it's in written format on the TorahMessiah.org website in PDF format. And you can download it if you wish, print it, distribute it, whatever you wish to do. But I'm going to stop here, and I invite you to come back and listen to part three of part two, where we describe and define Yeshua Judaism. Thank you for listening.